The following was recorded by the Zen Society, located in Shemong, New Jersey, near Philadelphia. Please visit us at thezensociety.org. Incomparable, profound, minutely subtle, pervading the entire universe, revealing right here, right now, is rarely experienced, even in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. We can see it, we can listen to it, we can express and know it. May we completely understand and actualize this Tathagata's true meaning. Every morning, whenever I enter the Zendo at 4 a.m., I enter a sacred space, but not for the reasons that may seem obvious to some. A Zendo, and a Zen monastery for that matter, is a reflection, an outer representation of the hearts and minds of those who occupy it. While it is designed to be a place for training the mind-body toward awakening and transformation, those in training already possess everything needed to achieve this lifetime sometimes arduous challenge, even though they may not know it when first entering. Zen spirituality, including meditation and mindfulness training, is about what I call creating space. It has very little, if nothing at all, to do with transcending or escaping the world's problems, stresses, and anxieties. Quite the opposite. It has everything to do with creating space or to hold space for oneself and the world, including all the stuff our ego prefers averting and avoiding. The Buddha taught that the heart and soul of the Buddha way is friendship. Authentic spirituality is about making friends with ourselves with others and with the world, as we and they and the world is, rather than some idealistic notion about the way the world should be. This does not exclude engaging in efforts toward making the world more loving or kind. For me, the question surrounding our efforts is always about how do we best do that? Thomas Merton wrote, disinterested love is also called the love of friendship. That is to say, a love which rests in the good of the beloved, not in one's own interest or satisfaction, not in one's own pleasure. A love which does not exploit, manipulate, even by serving, but which simply loves a love which, 
simply loves because it loves and for no other reason or purpose and is therefore perfectly free. Everyone talks about love, but few really love themselves, let alone others. Perhaps it is because we have become confused about how to love. Merton's words say to us that holding space for ourselves and others is love. Love has to do with being present in a very clear and specific way. St. Paul wrote that love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In other words, to hold space is presence without criticism or judgment, without wanting to alter or manipulate or having the moment this way or that way. It's about just holding space in the way a loving mother or father may hold their small child confused or maybe afraid at the moment. Perhaps not even a single word spoken, and yet the child feels relieved and encouraged, safe and appreciated. Holding space for ourselves in meditation and in mindfulness practice is about holding ourselves just the way we are and allowing whatever to show up during the meditation to just show up. There is nothing we need to do with it. We simply hold it in our hearts and minds to be fully experienced while we are a safe, non-judgmental or critical bearer or witness to it. We then can learn from the experience and using what we learned, move on. The ground for meditating in this better way has to do with whether we feel it or not at the time, unconditionally loving ourselves. As a parent or father of an eight-year-old daughter, since the day she was born, I have adored her. I expect that there is nothing she can ever do to change that. She is not perfect in her behavior any more than her father is. And like the words of St. Paul, I do not keep a record of her wrongs. Every moment, every day she is with me, I remain mindful of my adoration, especially when her behavior may not warrant it. Likewise, in Zen, we train to hold ourselves and others in the same way. I learned a long time ago through my personal suffering that everyone is just trying to get through the night. The most common thing we share as human beings is suffering. And in order to free ourselves from suffering and its causes, we can never forget that. While we remind ourselves of it every day, it becomes the ground 
for any skillfulness we ever expect to develop. Jizoan Zendo is a sacred space only because when one or more occupy it, it is a safe place, a place of refuge. There alone, during the early dawn meditation and prayer, I hold myself and my community and all sentient beings in my heart and in my mind. Without criticism or judgment, I hold space and I pray by the power and the truth of the Dharma of loving kindness and compassion, may all beings everywhere, now and forever, be free of sorrow and suffering, and the causes of sorrow and suffering. May they be content and possess the causes for contentment and abundant prosperity. May they live in peace. This is my prayer. This is my intention. Good evening. And welcome. In Zen there is a saying, a teaching more accurately, without a clear understanding of how the mind operates from moment to moment, nothing is possible. So tonight's dialogue on the topic of what I call holding space which is at the heart of all spiritual practice, finds its roots in that understanding. So we need to begin by talking a little bit about that, how the mind is operating from moment to moment. Because for so many of us, the source or the location of our suffering, our disappointment, our discontentment, our fear and worriment, obviously or maybe not so obviously, is in the mind. While the mind tends to delude the being into believing that the cause of our suffering exists out here, the reality is it is always within us, within the mind. Or more accurately, within that particular part of our consciousness we refer to as ego. Ego is a very small part of our consciousness. In fact, neuroscientists will tell you that if we can compare mind to the brain, if we can look at the brain as an organism of the body, this being a kind of circumference-looking brain in my hands, that ego occupies a very tiny space, let's say over here, compared to the rest of the mass of the brain. Neuroscience teaches us that the brain processes 400 billion bits of information every minute and that we are aware of only a very small fraction of that. And the reason why we are aware of only a very small fraction of that is that human beings who never set about the business of doing the work of what we call authentic spirituality learn about the mind and trained in mind-body training, human beings are operating almost exclusively from that very small place in the brain, which is ego or egocentric. Now, in order to understand the impact operating from that space 24 hours a day, seven days a week, we need to understand, again, the design function of ego. 
In Zen, almost a thousand years ago, Dogen Zenji told his students, there is no self I can call myself, and ego does not exist. So we often refer to ego as this, if you will, part of our being that actually exists. But we understand in Zen and in neuroscience that ego is the term used for the state of a person's mind at any given moment. So the design function of ego is exclusively survival. And we need to be really clear about that. Ego has a singular design function and purpose, survival of the being. So what that means is that when we are operating from an egocentric place, we are viewing the world around us and our place in that world from a very survival-oriented place or point of view. And when we are operating from a place of survival, whether we are under real threat of body and existence or not, because another factor of egocentricity is that in that moment when the being is coming from a place of survival, ego does not distinguish between real threat and perceived threats. So back in the primordial days, in the caveman days, ego was operating from a very pure place. What do I mean by that? It operated from a place or it kicked in, if you will, for the being when there were real threats. All the evidence we know about primordial days and the evolutionary process of man is that in, for many years, if not millions of years in man's history, uh, there's this whole period of time where man's feelings did not get hurt. Okay? That, you know, what other people thought about them, other people's opinions, and what other people did with them wasn't part of the consciousness of man. So back in those days, threat meant real threat. It meant fire, it meant a, meant a predator chasing you down, it meant the lack of food, it meant a natural disaster. So ego kicked in when it was really necessary. Science shows us that around the time man begins to become civilized, creates civilizations, and so forth, the design purpose of ego becomes something larger than real threat survival. The definition moves from survival of the being to survival of the being and anything the being considers itself to be. And what does that mean? It is around that time that man begins to identify with his beliefs about himself and the world around him. He identifies with them in such a way that the survival of those beliefs, the survival of his opinions, the survival of his ideas, now become part of the bureaucracy of ego. That is to say, that's how we can explain, for example, as I often explain it, how two very loving people in a relationship can at any moment when one party disagrees with the other party's beliefs or opinions, becomes suddenly these very mean, nasty, 
evil monsters. So the way that we can explain how all of a sudden love becomes hate for even the greatest of lovers in those cases has to do with the evolution of ego and its design purpose. So we're talking about this at the beginning of tonight's dialogue for this reason. In order to go from one point in your life to another, you need to know where you are first. You need to know, as we're discussing, how ego operates in our life. So again, neuroscience has proven that while the brain, including mind, uh, processes some 400 billion bits of information in any given minute, we are only aware of a small fragment of that. And our awareness of that information, though that fragmented piece of information, is always from a very egocentric place. So, summarize, 90% of the time we are operating from a place of stress and anxiety and fear. We view the world from us over here and the world over there. And we view the world over there by compartmentalizing it into basically two separate compartments. The good, the bad. What I like, what I don't like. And when we are interacting with our environment, the world out here, we are interacting according to that design, according to that bureaucracy, if you will. Spirituality is the means, or its intention, is the means by which we liberate ourselves from that delusional view of life. It's a means of awakening from a lifetime of ego delusion that has convinced us that this way of being, first of all, is necessary in a time when most of those real threats that the caveman, for example, experienced have been, if not eliminated, dealt with in such a way that for most of us, we're not running away from uh, uh, giant dinosaurs, well, not dinosaurs, giant animals, and, and most of us do not live in a constant predatory environment. And that our natural needs for food and water are pretty well supplied for us. So most of the time, that experience in our body and being, whether it is subtle, that is, we are unconscious to it being present, or profound, is perceived, is a creation of the mind, a manufacturing of the mind. Ego is always operating from a place of judgment and criticism. It is always viewing the world from a place of qualifying it or disqualifying it. And you need to just listen to your conversations about the world. When you listen to people's conversations about the world, ego is always discussing it in a way that this is good, this is bad, this I like, this I don't. This is the way it should be, this is the way it shouldn't be. And after a lifetime of operating that way, we become convinced that there is no other way. I know that because after 42 years of talking to people about that, one of the most common reactions to my suggestion of being 
loving, kind, compassionate, forgiving is. But isn't it normal to see the world that way? See, isn't it human to see the world that way? Well, this might surprise you. It isn't. We are much larger and much more than our judgments and criticisms that we hold, and this is another part of you know, the, the delusional piece of this, we hold our perceptions as true, as real. When you come to authentic spiritual practice, part of the training involves questioning all of that. Questioning all of your perceptions, all of your perceived notions about yourself and the world. And this is why most people never stick around for the training, because in order to do that, you need to be open to being challenged. And in order to be challenged, the challenge is not about how the world is. You see, in Zen, we're not sitting here looking out at the world wondering when it's going to be better. We're sitting here looking in at ourselves, wondering when we are going to embrace it, when we are going to be loving, when we are going to be what we are, and what we are are Buddhas or enlightened beings. So, I preempted tonight's dialogue on the topic of holding space with that because in order to get from point A to point B, we need to see where we are and what we need to do. And where we are is, whether we are aware of it or not, often stuck in what we call the bureaucracy of ego. We're stuck in seeing the situations of our environment from a very critical and very judgmental place. So in Zen, this is true about everyone, including the teacher one day, who comes to train. In Zen, we all come to train with this egocentric view of ourselves and the world around us. And if it is an authentic Zen training center or monastery, and if the teacher knows what she or he is talking about, all that stuff gets challenged. And it gets challenged in a very particular way. And it has everything to do with our behavior. Everything in Zen has to do with our behavior. That is, how we operate in the moment. Whether we are truly present to the moment in a way that we are able to really see it as it really is or not. And if we're not, how do we get to that inherent, because we are born with this, and the evidence is you just need to watch children, who uh, at a very early age operate from a very non-critical and non-judgmental place and eventually learn to be that way according to their environment. So how do we get back to that inherent ability of ours to hold ourselves first? And that might sound selfish, and it is. But it's selfish not for the reasons you think. And the selfishness I talk to is more like what the late Suzuki Roshi used to call it, call it wise selfishness. Because as you'll hear me mention probably at least three times tonight, I can only give you, the world, what I have. So if I cannot hold space, that unconditional, loving, non-critical, non-judgmental space for myself, I'm certainly not going to be able to do it for you. I can only give the world 
what I have. And in fact, that is exactly what I am always giving the world. I am always seeing you from the very same place I see me. I am always projecting outward into the world how far I've gotten in holding myself. So we're going to talk about holding space for yourself first and then holding space for others. Because again, we cannot hold space for others if we have not yet learned how to hold space for ourselves. And holding space has a lot to do with, again, training mind-body to break away from a lifetime of habitual behavior that is rooted in the delusion of we live in a universe that is fearful. Einstein once said, you either believe that we live in a universe that is miraculous or not. You either believe that we live in a universe that is designed to work or not, you're saying. So in order for us to truly be or live in the universe according to our true nature, and in Buddhism when we talk about my true nature, we're talking about the true nature of all sentient beings. When the Buddha woke up to his true nature, he did not say in those historical words, he did not say, I am Buddha. He said, all beings are Buddha. Because when he realized that for himself, he realized that about all of us. And so his, those words down through the centuries have been translated in millions of different ways. And the way this teacher has translated them is that what he was saying was, you and I possess inherently the ability to love ourselves and to love the world, yes, unconditionally, without judgment and criticism. And, as we are witnessing it today, perhaps again, there are people much, much older than I, believe it or not, that tell me that the state of the world you and I are witnessing today has been here before. We've been in this place before. Now that could be good news if it wasn't the fact that if we've been in this place before, why are we backing in it again? And the simple answer to that is we obviously did not learn what we needed to learn because the laws of the universe dictate that whatever you resist persists. So we still have apparently the lesson to learn. And part of my job as an abbot of this monastery and as a Zen teacher is to hopefully help you get to learn that lesson along with me, and so forth. And that lesson is, there is a better way, there is a different way, and there is, as the ancient Zen masters wrote about it, a reality which is the reality of life prior to heaven and earth. And when they wrote it in that way, they wanted us to understand, because they wrote in code, they intended only those who would understand the code to get it. Because they knew that those who would understand the code did the work to get it. You see? And what they were saying to us is, there is, a, there is a reality that exists outside of our thoughts and our opinions and our beliefs. In fact, prior to our thinking mind, they're saying, 
that is the only reality. So for, it's kind of like if you can try to visually see this for yourself, there is this reality and the moment you start to think about it, that's a lie. Okay, that's what they're saying to us. And that when we step outside, which much of Zen training, especially the training of holding space, when you step outside the bureaucracy of ego that is constantly thinking about all of this, when you really step outside, even for a moment, and you have that experience of what many people describe in many different ways, they call it enlightenment, they call it aha, they call it, you know, uh, you know, insight, when you have those moments, it's such a profound experience for the being because we've gotten so used to believing and surrendering to the false notion that the world exists up here, and it doesn't. This is just a fabrication, a story about the world. To hold space requires a trained being in stepping outside of that critical, judgmental, discriminating way of thinking that ego is constantly generating uh, all the time. Any questions? I'm sorry. Hi. Thank you very much. Um, it's hard to imagine. Uh, living without certain amounts of judgment. Um, I'm a firm believer in the idea of holding space and finding something within. But um, when I look at the political situation today, uh, it's hard not to have judgment. So it seems like we're living at two levels. I think that... Um as I often mention in, the, in these moments, the problem always has to do with semantics. Okay? Could you do me a favor? Could you come up here? I was playing with my dog earlier today and she twisted my neck. <laughs> Damn dog. Thank you. Okay. We'll get you there quick. So, Let me back up and say this first, because I always enjoy saying this. Um, it's stupid to go through life half-assed no matter what cheek you're left with, okay? All right? So Buddhism is often referred to as the middle way. And by that we mean learning how to live in equanimity. That's the first piece. The second piece, there is a profound difference, and we're rarely taught this, uh, there's a profound difference between judging and discerning, okay? So let me go back and read once again what Merton says here. Disinterested love is also called the love of friendship. That is to say, a love which rests in the good of the beloved. So when we're talking about what he calls disinterested love, another word that I would prefer using is detached, okay? is when I am looking at the situation that you're referring to, I can have my opinions about it, and I can even have my opposition to it without hating the parties or judging or condemning the parties involved in it. Okay? So that's the difference here. 
So there's nothing wrong with having opinions. But when you look honestly at most people's situation, the reality is opinions have them. Okay? They will, ha they will commit. You know, Jesus says to his students, to conquer the Romans make you no different than they. So when we have someone, you know, saying terrible things in leadership about people and to people, and his opposition is saying terrible things about him, that's the lesson. No different than they. And what happens when we find ourselves caught in that way of being, it limits my ability to see with clarity, okay? It literally restricts me to this pre- or prejudicial idea about the situation, okay? So, again, when the Buddha set out to find out the answers to his own problems in life, he had a very clear opinion about life. His enlightenment was so profoundly transformational for him because he found out that his, what he thought was true and so was absolutely not, okay? And he woke up. It shook him out of that limited and restricted view of life. So when he lays down the teachings to share this with others in the days ahead, he lays out a map, literally called the Eightfold Noble Path. And, the and it's eight steps, you could say. And the first step he lays down, he also says to his monks, if you resolve nothing more but the first noble truth of the Eightfold Noble Path, all the rest will fall in place. Mm -hmm. And that was point of view. How you view yourself and the world around you. If you can get what he called right view, if you can achieve that, all the other steps fall into place, naturally. So he was always coming back to my perception of the world and knowing the difference between my perception, which is always being deluded by this bureaucracy of ego. Ego is always filtering what's happening out here to me, okay? So Zen meditation, the meditation of the Buddha, is about liberating yourself from that bureaucracy. So I use such terms as the results of what, or what most people call enlightenment is really clarity. I can see clearly now the rain has gone, okay? I can see all obstacles in my way, as the song went, if you will, okay? Whereas before, we find ourselves bouncing off of, driving into, getting run over by the obstacles. And again, that's not possible until we step out of and enter into what, again, Merton calls this disinterested love, okay? So, um, you know, I grew up with a weekly television series where the cop always said the same thing, just the facts, ma'am, just the facts. <laughs> and now we don't even know what the facts are, <laughs> according to some. I mean, I know what the facts are, but according to some, we can't even trust that. And that was, that was a really smart move on their part. 
you know, to confuse people about that. So, but just the facts. So, yeah, so have your opinions, but how many of them really have you? So it's, so again, I all, I often, you know, where I operate from the place, as I wrote about, uh, you know, parenting my daughter, I'm always coming from a particular context that allows me to see the larger picture than just, she's not doing it right, okay? There's a larger picture. And that's what, you know, the Buddha Dharma is always saying to us. Our ego limits and restricts us to this very fine night view of the world. So enlightenment is the expansion from here to the infinite, where we see the whole picture. And, you know, I don't want to talk about the whole picture tonight because it will really get people upset. Okay? Thank you. And I can go back over there. Unless you're going to ask me another question. Would you like to move over there? No, I can see. Okay. Um, this is all new to me. Okay. Me too. <laughs> uh, when I think of ego or egocentric, I think of someone full of themselves, or it's I did this, I did that. It's all every every word is I. Mm -hmm. And I'm a nurse, and ego was from site one, oh one was that that was the basic was I. Now, I don't, for, for me, you know, with a little bit of low self-esteem, ego is pushed away, but I, would, I think with the low self-esteem, loving myself would improve my life, perhaps. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it's easier said than done, but um, I, I just, like, I can't get how you're talking about the ego out of my head because it, like, I think I understand it. Yeah. So let me say to you, and I meant to say it to this gentleman yes. also. So thank you for reminding me. Let me say this to you. Another thing Einstein said, and this is the most difficult lesson, I've been doing this for 40, almost 43 years now, and the most difficult lesson to teach people is what Einstein meant when he said, the mind that caused the problem will be insufficient in realizing the solution to the problem, okay? So when I hear you say, uh, I, I, I have a hard time pushing ego out, I have a hard time grasping this, I have a hard time mm -hmm. getting this, and what have you, I say, well, yeah, of course you do. Because the mechanism that you are using is not sufficient for getting this. So when you enter into Zen training, you start to cultivate the ground of awakening to a mechanism you were familiar with at birth and for a few years as a child before somebody polluted you, okay? And uh, you, you remember that mechanism. And that mechanism is, is not cognitive, so right now I'm talking to you and that cognitive part of the mind is attempting to understand what it cannot. What it cannot. You know, when you heard me, this, when I began, I did a ritual called opening the Dharma. This has been recited by teachers for thousands of years. And it says, 
This Dharma, incomparable, meaning the mind cannot come up with any comparison to it, okay? Minutely subtle, pervades the whole universe. There's nowhere where this is not able to be seen and known and so forth, yet is rarely experienced. And they measured that this way, in hundreds, thousands, millions of eons. So when I first heard that, I asked the teacher, what's an eon? And he said, I'll, I'll use this symbolism to help you understand. So he said, and I was in San Francisco at the time. So he said, we're going to empty the Pacific Ocean. And we're going to get that pigeon up on the roof there, that carrier pigeon. And we're going to put a seed in its mouth and instruct it to drop it in the middle of the Pacific Ocean on its way to Tokyo. And he said, when that, and when he gets to Tokyo, we got a guy over there that's going to put a seed in his mouth and send him back and give him the same instructions. When the entire Pacific Ocean is filled with seeds, that's one eon. Okay? So what were they saying to us? They were saying, again, this mechanism can't get this. So in Zen, the training is learning about how to nurture the ground for the reawakening of that, that consciousness that is inherent to all of us, that in fact all of us really are, in order to see this. And when we talk about the, the, the practice of holding space, uh, training in that awakens that mechanism within us. Okay? So don't get frustrated when you can't figure this out. Okay? Nobody. Nobody can. Yeah, but... But nobody can. Yeah. You're not alone. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Even, even high esteem people can't get this. <laughs> I know. I've been in the company. They seem to be the more difficult because they know God. <laughs> okay? Thank you. Anyone else? So when you do the work of Zen meditation training, you begin to become familiar with certain aspects of this self I call myself. And one of the things that almost immediately starts to reveal itself profoundly, whether you are aware of it or not, is that at all hours of the day, every minute of the day, every second of the day, the mind is having a conversation. The mind is having a conversation. And that conversation is always about one subject. You. Okay? And how you think about the rest of us. <laughs> okay? And the rest of the world. So that conversation is constantly running. Sometimes it comes forward and we're aware of it. Most of the time, it's just running in the background. And in fact, Jung and other masters uh, who you know, explored the domain of dreams and what have you, talk about the dream world is the place that we are working out our unconscious conversation going on in the course of the day. So when we go to sleep, the dreams come, are coming out of that conversation that we're not aware of 
in the course of the day. And in fact, mindfulness living and mindfulness training has to do with developing an awareness of that conversation. And especially in the moments that we find ourselves stressed, the first thing we look at is what's, what, what thoughts are present. What is the conversation about now? You see? Because thoughts are the mother of emotions and feelings. All feelings and all emotions are sourced in the story we are telling ourselves at any given moment. So mindfulness is an awareness of how in this moment of stress or anxiety and worryment, um, you know, the story going on in my head, whether I'm aware of it or not, but hopefully at that moment I am aware of it, is literally generating those feelings. Not because necessarily there is a real threat and a real worryment. So again, just quickly, one of the exercises I often give people to do is that in those moments you ask yourself the question, how do I know that to be true? How do I know that the story I'm telling myself about now is true, is real, you're saying? And what you almost discover immediately is that most of the time the answer is, I don't know it to be true, you're saying. I don't know it to be true. So, you know how you feel about when you think somebody has lied to you? Try to recall that feeling for a moment. Somebody has lied to you. You know how you feel when you feel like you've been lied to? Wonder why you feel that way a lot of times, or most of the time? Because you're lying to yourself. When you don't question the story in the moment and you just react from the story, you're operating from a lie. And that's why most of our reactions to the triggers and the circumstances in life fail us in our well-intention to resolve the problem, I say. So we're, most of the time we are operating from a place of not having enough information to operate from that place. And it's kind of like you know, putting a three-year-old in a Corvette and letting them drive it. You know, if the same thing happens. To hold space for ourselves begins with training ourselves whether we feel it in the moment, believe it in the moment, or know it in the moment. Much of training mind-body is like that. So most people try to do this training from a place of well, don't I have to feel like that? No, you don't have to feel like that. You will eventually feel like that if you commit toward achieving that. But in the beginning, like my sister over here just shared with us, you know, how does someone who has low self-esteem, someone who is convinced they're not good enough, operate in this training of holding space that requires her to come from a place of unconditional love. You see, how do you do that? And the way you do that is you do that. You choose when you take to the mat, for example, and meditate on holding space for yourself to do that. So a lot of that has to do with standard meditation techniques. And that is, again, recognizing that when you are thinking 
you're not holding space. When you are thinking, you're not meditating. So we're going to use the term holding space, which is synonymous with meditating. So one of the rules that my students often hear me say when I'm in the process of training them to meditate is that if you start thinking, you've stopped meditating. And all you need to do when that happens is to notice you've done that and go back to the process of meditating. So in the beginning, training, holding space is very much like that. You need to relearn how to do it again because we have either forgotten how to do it or we have ignored that in us for so long that we just need a little bit of, uh, you know, precision training or practice. Anyone needs to, why don't we, if you want to stand up, shake your booty and get back in your seat so you're not preoccupied with how you feel in your body. Okay, so you heard me say a moment ago that in order to get to point B, you need to know where you are at point A. And we talked a little bit about the um, mechanics of where we are. But I want to read something to you from my favorite author, Mark Nepo. And it is titled, Loving Yourself. And he starts by uh, quoting Martin Buber. I begin to realize that in, that in inquiring about my own origin and goal, I am inquiring about something other than myself. In this very realization, I begin to recognize the origin and goal of the world. So Buber's words point to what I said a moment ago. We are always operating from an awareness of a reality in a very fragmented, isolated space. So it's like we see the world from here. And we see it long enough from here that we are convinced the world is like this. You know, uh, the Buddha tells, there's a story in the Buddha Dharma where he talks about three blind men that unknowingly come upon an elephant. And they both come upon this great elephant at different areas of the elephant's body. And they're asked to describe to each other what an elephant is like. And so the guy who's got the elephant's trunk says, is long and has two holes. An elephant is long with two holes. Another guy has the small tail and he says, an elephant is thin and a little bit of hair. And the other guy's holding his leg, for example. The point is, is that this is how we normally come to believe our world. We are only seeing it from a fragmented part, but we believe it to be whole. Buber is saying to us, when I finally stop in the course of my life, which is what happened for Shakyamuni Buddha, the historical Buddha, and all Buddhas since, the awakening began when he stopped thinking about the world, cognitively searching the world, and so forth, and entered into deep samadhi meditation. When he stopped doing that, Buber is saying, I found that in inquiring about my origin and my purpose and existence for living, I came to discover 
the origin of the world and its real purpose and existence. You see. Because I am inquiring about something other than myself. And this word myself is that egocentric I that you're referring to, which does not exist. It's a fabrication of the mind. So Nepo says, in loving ourselves, we love the world. For just as fire, rock, and water are all made up of molecules, everything, including you and me, is connected by a small piece of the beginning. Yet, how do we love ourselves? It is as difficult at times as seeing the back of your head. It can be as elusive as it is necessary. I have tried and tripped many times, and I can only say that loving yourself is like feeding a clear bird that no one else can see. You must be still and offer your palm full of secrets like delicate seed. As she eats your secrets, no longer secret, she glows and you lighten, and her voice, which only you can hear, is your voice bereft of plans. And the light through her body will bathe you till you wonder why the gems in your palm were ever fisted. Others will think you crazed to wait on something no one sees. But the clear bird only wants to feed and fly and sing. She only wants light in her belly. And once in a great while, if someone loves you enough, they might see her rise from the nest beneath your feet, beneath your fear. In this way, I've learned that loving yourself requires a courage unlike any other. It requires us to believe in and stay loyal to something no one else can see that keeps us in the world, our own self-worth. All the great moments of conception, the birth of mountains, of trees, of fish, of prophets, of the truth of relationships that last, all begin where no one can see. And it is our job not to extinguish what is so beautifully begun. For once full of light, everything is safely on its way, not pain-free, but unencumbered. And the air beneath your wings is the same air that trills in my throat. And the empty benches in the snow are as much a part of us as the empty figures who slouch on them in spring. When we believe in what no one else can see, we find we are each other. And all moments of living, no matter how difficult, come back into some central point where self and world are one, where light pours in and out at once. And once there, I realize, make real before me that this moment where whatever it might be is a fine moment to live 
and the fine moment to die. Got that? So Nepo goes as far to say what everyone else can't see. But I would include what you also may not be able to see at the moment. So it's what all of us, myself included, may not see. We need to bring that behavior, whether we are convinced about it or not, to our practice. So it's like I often say to my students, you are Buddha, act accordingly. Now you may not know that about yourself. You may not know that you were created this perfectly enlightened creature. Or if you do, you may know it only conceptually, as a belief or as an idea. But it realizes itself in you, it realizes itself in you, when you, which is the definition of realize, make it real. When you make it real, when you conduct yourself behave as it is real. And not until then. Not until then. You can try to get to it by thinking about it, and ego will always interrupt that process with doubt. And all the reasons why not. You can try to get to it by reading one self-help book after another, and it is the multi, multi, multi-billion dollar industry in this country because not one of those books will get you to that. Okay? Not one. And they know you'll keep buying the next one. You see? Because maybe on the next page they'll tell you the secret. The secret. The secret. You know how much money those guys make? I've had so many self-help books I've never yeah, yeah, I hear you. I, it's just all of a sudden in the middle of it. I hear you. So, the context, which is what determines what shows up for your training in holding space for yourself and others, has to do with training with unconditional love for yourself and others. When criticism of any kind, judgment of any kind shows up in the process of training yourself in holding, a, holding space, shows up, you simply are, are aware of it, you notice it, you dismiss it, and come back to holding that space. Come back to holding that space. So we're going to do a little exercise after we take another brief break for you to get comfortable in your seats. And uh, when we do this exercise, I will guide you through the mental process of holding yourself, holding yourself in that space. But I think my blog that went out on the internet yesterday, I guess, uh, makes I, and that's the reason why I wrote it, because I thought it was the best reference. In the way a loving mother or father may hold their small child confused or maybe afraid at the moment, 
perhaps not even a single word spoken, and yet the child feels relieved and encouraged, safe and appreciated. And those of you who are parents, who, can, who either now have or can remember back to when your children were that small, and they would yell out from some part of the house or property for help how you felt, how you knew you were going to get there, and how your initial, at least, inclination was to just hold them. I know that's how it works in me, you see. And, uh, you know, when my daughter is in need of that, and I've also noticed with her that even when I do start to talk, she doesn't want to hear the talking. She just wants to be helped. Holding space for yourself is like that. You train in not allowing the conversation to come in. So what will happen when you hold space is that you will hold yourself as this perfect being. Or, for those of you who need to hear it this way, this perfectly imperfect being. Okay? You hold yourself in that way without criticism, without judgment, and you bring to mind in that space of meditation all the love and all the peace and all the joy that, again, the Buddha Dharma teaches is already within you, and you've suppressed it with your thinking about it. You've got to get out of your heads. <laughs> you know, anybody who told you that it's like there's something in there to get, lie to you. It's a bad neighborhood. It's, yeah, it's a really dangerous neighborhood. It's the hood. <laughs> it really is. Okay, so we'll take a qu quick break. If you need to go to the bathroom, do that. And then when we come back, we're going to do a uh, meditation exercise of holding space. Don't be long. Okay, so when you take your seats, and again, if you're not used to meditating on a cushion, there's no reason why you need to be on a cushion. So sit on the chair, and we won't talk about all you people sit on the chairs. Uh, I don't want, yeah, I want to make sure everybody's back in. Mayor, is everyone back in? Okay. So when we begin this process, you know, you want to just simply follow the instructions and follow them from beginning to end of the process. And again, this is a very quick instruction on what needs to be trained in, needs to be practiced regularly. And as I said before, you know, uh, we took the break, uh, you are going to bring an attitude or the proper context for training in meditation, particularly Zen meditation, the proper context is an attitude that has to do with being in the meditation in a way that you may not be convinced about at this time. So the context for training in holding space for yourself is that, you know, I am worthy of the love and the joy and the happiness that I believe others are. Saying, that I hold an equal share in that. So when the Buddha awakened to his true identity, he also said 
that we already possess. When we talk about Buddha nature, we're talking about those qualities such as love and compassion and kindness and joy and peace and happiness. So we understand that to mean that all those things that we tend to go through life looking for in all the wrong places find their location in only one place, and that is within you. You already possess Buddha nature. So many, many people unaware of Eastern uh, practices tend to think that you come to a Zen monastery to become a Buddha. No, you come to the Zen monastery as a Buddha and you realize your Buddha nature. You awaken to that fact. So the fact is, is that you are love. You are happiness. You are joy. You are kindness. You merit all of the forgiveness. I want to read you something the Buddha wrote about that. Before we start, this came to mind. I had it here. He said, You can search throughout the entire universe for someone who is more deserving of your love and affection than you are yourself. And that person is not to be found anywhere. You yourself, as much as anybody in the universe, deserve your love and affection. And that's the context of holding space for yourself. So perhaps you might think of it this way. While the rest of the world may not be interested in appreciating you, while the rest of the world may not be interested in loving you, while the rest of the world may not be interested in forgiving you, you are going to be that for yourself. And in fact, on his dying bed, when all of his monks were concerned about what was going to happen to them when he left, he said to them, Atta Dipa, translated, rely on yourself. Rely on yourself. You are the Dharma, he said. You are the light. You are the teachings. You are all of the things you are in search of. Act accordingly. That's my words. All right, so you want to sit up. And you want to sit up in a way that you feel supported in your seat. If you're sitting on a chair, both feet solid on the floor, where your soles of your feet can feel the earth beneath you. And you don't want to be straining. You don't want to be, you know, uh, stretching any part of your body to maintain the posture. So when you sit up, the next thing is to sit into your seat. But again, you do not want to be slumped over in any way. You do not want your head to be forward in any way. You want to kind of have a shoulder squared posture with the floor, yet gently sitting there. And just take a moment to just experience the sensation of that posture. Experience the sensation of the posture. How does your body feel? Zen meditation is sensual in nature. So we see through our senses, we inquire through our senses. So we begin with feeling how it feels to be sitting in this space, occupying this space, how our body feels. And we expand our awareness 
to include sounds that we are hearing, including the sound of my voice. Perhaps the taste on your palate at the moment. Any aromas that you smell. Even though your eyes are closed and should remain closed, any mental formations that may be rising and surfacing. Just for a moment, feel yourself and your environment. And if you find yourself going to thinking, using your breath by taking a deep breath, draw your awareness back into your body, Hold your breath as you inhale all the way and release it and settle down into your body. You can do that as many times as necessary. Because all you want to be doing in this moment is breathing in, breathing out, and through your senses experiencing the experience of just sitting in this moment. just continue to do that while I speak to you. Hear the sounds, including the sound of my voice. Continue to be aware of the sensation of breathing in and breathing out. And simply notice any other feelings or emotions or mental formations rising. But again, you start to think you've stopped meditating. Just simply notice you've done that. Take a deep breath as if you are pulling your mind back into your body. And as you exhale, settle back into your body. So this moment is your moment. This time is your time. This engagement with still mind, still body is for your benefit. You merit this benefit. And the world needs you to accept this benefit. So as you continue to breathe in and breathe out, becoming more and more aware of how your body is feeling, notice any specific parts of your body that may feel tense or strained or stressed. And again, you can use your breath by breathing in to that area of your body, and as you exhale, relax that area of your body. Nothing to think about. No one to be. 
nothing to do, nowhere to go. This moment for you, received by you, permission to just be present to yourself. you to be aware of the image you have of yourself in this moment, whatever that image may be, as if you see yourself in the mirror, whatever it may be, doesn't matter what the image is, it's an image, an imagining. And hold that image in your mind as if you are sitting in front of a mirror looking directly at that image. Whatever it may be, it does not matter. There is no good image, no bad image. There's just the image being reflected in the mirror of your mind. Again, imagine in your mind the love you want for that image, for that reflection. As if you are wishing it. As if you have the power, and you alone do, to grant that wish. You merit love. No matter how you've learned about it till now, you have the permission of the universe to love yourself. You merit love because as Martin Nepo's words, as Martin Buber said, when I see my true self, I realize I come from the same source, the same beginning as everyone and everything else. And that's a fact. So to unconditionally love ourselves is to unconditionally forgive ourselves for anything we think needs forgiveness. Whether we think we merit it or not, the truth is we merit freedom to be who we are. We were designed and created and came into existence to be who we are. And when we do not forgive, we limit that possibility. So not only for you, but for the rest of us, forgive yourself at this moment so that you can be who you are. And take a deep breath. 
folded, exhale, and relax. And hold your image, hold yourself in this moment like a loving mother or father to yourself, a good parent to yourself. So quietly recite the four mantras I gave my little girl to recite and has recited ever since that day, every day she's with me. Quietly say to yourself, I am wonderful. I am beautiful. I am capable. I am loved. So if you need to stand up and shake your booty, go ahead and do that. So you need to be honest, because if you aren't going to be honest, then this was a waste of time. So how many people experience resistance to what you heard? Thank you. Raise your hands. Thank you. Thank you. Ego will always give you the reason why not. Always. Always. So the question is, how do you know that to be true? Because the truth will what? Set you free. And anything less than the truth will keep you isolated, keep you restricted, keep you dysfunctional, keep you fearful, and so forth. The truth is the only thing that liberates us. So how do I know it to be true that I do not merit to be free, to be authentic, to be who I am? So we could spend hours on end talking about something I've spent 43 years talking about, and that is how you got to where you are. But none of that has any value unless you are willing to muster up the courage to liberate yourself from how you got there. And how you got there has everything to do with behavior. We learn early on in life to behave in particular ways according to our definitions of who we are and our place in the world. So if early on in life I define myself as unworthy, 
I began to shape and form my environment and my behavior to reflect and support that. So it is my behavior that compounds that belief about myself, that compounds that experience about myself, and that the only way I can reverse that is what? Behave differently. The surest way to have your life go on the way it has up until now is to keep behaving the way you have been, been behaving up until now. Because our behaviors are double-edged swords. Our behaviors are born out of our definitions of ourselves. We behave according to the way we view ourselves and our place in the world. And our behaviors come back to us, <coughs> reflecting back to us what we are putting out there. Okay, so for example, if I am convinced that I am not worthy, guess what my world is going to support? Guess what my world is going to look like? A place where everything always seems out of my reach. And I'm going to behave in ways to reinforce that because there's nothing more powerful than a belief. And there's nothing more dangerous dangerous than a belief that is rooted in a lie. <coughs> Nothing. We're witnessing that in the world today. So I need to behave in ways and holding space for myself has to do with taking care of myself. I need to be my own best friend. I need to be the lover, the forgiver, the acceptor, the embracer of me, rather than waiting for the world to come along and do that for me because the world that I am creating out of my false beliefs from my conditioning as a child is not going to do it. It's not going to do it. We are creating our reality moment by moment by our mental attitudes, our belief systems, our opinions, and all the rest. So here I am believing I'm not worthy and wondering why the world will not love me. That's not the world I'm creating with that belief. And, and, and to make it worse, I'm behaving that way. I don't take care of me. So why would I expect the world to do it? I don't think I'm worthy of tenderness. I don't, I'm not tender towards myself. I beat myself up all the time. So why am I shocked that people are beating me up everywhere I go? You're saying? Whatsoever a man sows, so shall he reap. He said that. The Buddha said, everything begins with our thoughts. We think a certain way about ourselves. We speak a certain way about ourselves. We act a certain way about ourselves according to our thoughts about ourselves. So we need to behave even though we may not think that way. That'll come. That will come. Ego will get so crazy by not understanding your behavior <laughs> that it explodes. It collapses. 
And people call that enlightenment. Zen training is about confusing you so much that you explode. (laughs) And then what's left is the real you. Make it a daily requirement to center yourself, ground and remain in your own core. So what we just did, you need to do every day in one form or another. You need to stop the course of your day, go to a space in your home or wherever, and just sit with yourself. Don't think about anything. Just sit with yourself. One of the most profound lessons that helped me later on in my life meditate was watching old men in my father's hometown that he grew up old men and women sit on porches for hours rocking just watching they weren't having a conversation they weren't thinking about anything they were just sitting and watching sitting and watching and i I, at that age obviously i thought what are they doing And then I became a Zen student and a Zen teacher and a Zen master, and now I know what they were doing. Every day you need to make it a requirement. You need to require yourself to stop and just be with yourself. So that means you're going to have to put your iPhone somewhere else in the house or turn it off. You need to turn the news off. You need to turn the radio off. You need to go to that spot where you feel comfortable enough to just sit still even if it's five minutes, you need to stop all of that. You need to visit yourself. You need to spend time with yourself. And you need to make that a requirement. We all need to hold space for ourselves if we are going to be able to live life in a healthy and balanced way. To expand my capacity to be there for others, I need to truly learn how to be there for myself. So those of you who think you want to save the world and change the world, you need to save yourself first. You can only give what you have. You can only give what you have. So love of the world, compassion for the world, must begin with love for yourself and compassion for yourself. I don't trust anybody who tells me they care about the world when I watch that they don't care about themselves. That's where we know it conceptually and anything just at the conceptual level is not only has no benefit for the rest of the world but also can become dangerous. Mm -hmm. Lao Tzu said, beware of the armies that fight for moral reasons. Mm -hmm. He also said, Sit by the river long enough and you'll see the bodies of all your enemies float by. (laughs) Gotta love them. Holding space for yourself means becoming the container to experience my experience as it rises moment to moment. So when we are sitting and meditating, whether it's in the domain of holding space, as I said earlier tonight, holding space and meditation are synonymous. The same rules apply. So one of the false meditation practices that is often presented out there is where we use meditation to manipulate the moment. Zen meditation is about creating the space 
to allow whatever shows up in the moment to show up in the moment just as it is and just as it isn't, without criticism, without judgment. So there's no bad meditation, no good meditation. There is, you know, have I, you know, in my meditation, my aim and objective is to be the container for life to show up, for life to present itself. And again, the problem that often surfaces for people is that most people have this false concept of life, that life should always be good, that life should always be present, you see. So when people come to me in private uh, counseling sessions and they tell me, I feel incomplete, I tell them that's because you are, mm -hmm. you see, because you're trying to live life in an unbalanced way. You want all the happiness and joy, but none of the other stuff that comes with the happiness and the joy. You can't go up a pair of stairs unless you're thinking down. In fact, the brain, when you walk to a flight of stairs, you may not know this, and the brain sees the stairs, the brain empowers you to walk up those stairs because it's thinking down. It's thinking the opposite in that moment. So, good and bad, yin and yang, light and darkness, not two, one. Remember, it always, the, the reading says, and out of the darkness came the light. Out of the darkness came the light. It didn't come from any other position in the universe. It came out of the very darkness that we think spirituality is about averting and avoiding. So when I meditate, I'm creating a space. I'm becoming a container for life to show up. And when I meditate from that neutral place, from that place of equanimity, whatever shows up, I just simply have, I simply hold it, I simply experience it, as it is. And when you have truly experienced anything fully enough, that is, you haven't injected criticism or judgment into the experience, uh, it disappears. And that's, those are those moments where we feel like we've completed something in our life and we feel lighter, and we feel you know, able to move on. Most of us cannot move on because we have not completed things in our life that need to be completed. You can't go on to the next until you've completed what you're doing now. And in completing, we need to be able to be a container, to be a space large enough that receives whatever shows up. The secret to sustainable relationships relies on the couple's willingness to allow whatever shows up in the course of the relationship to show up and not in opposition to the relationship. And I often tell the story over the years, I must have told this story a thousand times and I think I'm going to remember her name this time. Uh, Steve Allen and his wife, Audrey Meadows. I did it. Finally. Okay, I, I quit. <laughs> so Steve Allen and Audrey Meadows and two other co comedian couples were on Phil Donahue's show. Some of you are too young to remember Phil Donahue. And uh, he was really the first talk show host there ever was. And um, Donahue had them on the show and the theme of the show was all of these couples, including Alan and Meadows, 
uh, were, were married, divorced, and remarried each other again. And he asked the question of, of the, uh, uh, you know, the comedians there. He said, so what do you attribute to the success of your marriage now? And Audrey Meadows jumped to answer the question, and she said, the second time around we agreed divorce was not an option. Quitting was not an option. So in order to do that, relationship is a container that allows for whatever to show up in the course of the relationship to show up not as oppositional to the relationship, but just another lesson to be learned by the parties in the relationship. Life that works, the life of the Buddha that works is such a container as well. So when you're meditating, when you're holding space for yourself, there is no judgment, there is no criticism, there is no opposition to what shows up. You become a silent observer, a quiet receiver, witness to whatever shows up. In the same way, Chiman was trained and operates in his hospice care to another. And this is how we're going to now move into holding space for another. Holding space for another is another quintessential requirement for sustainable relationships. When we talk about holding space for others in, uh, you know, in either a conversation or a desperate, troubled moment, or in Chaman's uh, daily experience with terminally ill people and so forth, we become a container. We become a presence to them. We, we don't come from a place of wanting to fix them. We don't come from a place to wanting to fix the moment or change the moment. And this has to do with the key to skillful communication. Communication is another piece of sustainable relationships. And the secret to skillful communication is what? Listening. And you want to know, the first lesson, on the lesson to learn how to listen, is you don't. And again, when you do the work of meditation, you become aware of that. Because most people, when they're sharing with each other, both parties, or at least one of the parties, is not listening to what's being shared, they're preparing an answer to what's being shared. They're preparing a response to what's being shared. In order to listen, we need to go back to Merton's disinterested love. And what does he say to us? It is the love of friendship, that is to say, a love which rests in the good of the beloved, not in one's own interests, or whatever will satisfy me, not in my own pleasure. You know, you know, dying, you know, working with terminally ill people is a very difficult emotional place to be in. You see, working with terminally living people is a very difficult place to be in, and what have you. And if you haven't trained in being in a disinterested position when you're in others' company, uh, you don't hear what they're saying, you don't see what they're saying, you are unable to be empathetic in any way to their experience. And if you are not empathetic to their experience, how do you expect to understand anything they're trying to share with you? So Merting says, uh, 
A love which does not exploit, does not manipulate, even when serving, but which simply loves. A love which simply loves because it loves. Not because I must be a more loving person. Not because I must be a good Buddhist. I must be a better Christian. I must be Christ-like. No. A, a lover is someone who knows just loving. It's, you, know, you, you know, it's like I said to someone one day, I just can't help myself. When they ask me, well, why do you do I can't help myself. It's all I know and what have you. And this is what Merton is talking about, and this is what presence is like. We are just simply in each other's company holding space for one another to be in that space, back to the meditation context, being in that space, back to the meditation model or paradigm, and allowing whatever the person needs to be, whoever they need to be in that moment, whatever they need to say in that moment, to be just that. Offering no criticism, offering no judgment, and certainly not offering any guidance unless they ask for it. And even then, we offer it in a way that, again, is inclusive and not exclusive. You know, we don't say to them, well, now that you've given me an opportunity to talk, I'll tell you what to do with him. You know, no. That's judgmental, that's critical, and what have you. Like a small child, when that child cries out to the parent, the child just wants to know that it is safe and appreciated. And that's what we bring to our holding space for others. Merton goes on to say, a love which simply loves because it loves for no other reason or purpose and is therefore perfectly free. Perfectly free. And that's what it means to hold space for others. But again, that is a conceptual explanation of it. Until I have truly learned to hold space for myself, not only when I am sitting and training in holding space, because we meditate, the reason why we meditate in Zen is not to meditate for the rest of our lives, even though we do that the rest of our lives. We train here to be able to go back out into the world and be a benefit for others. So in Japanese monasteries, for example, it is a tradition for many people in the Japanese culture to go to a monastery, train for a few months, and they throw you out. You can't stay, you know, because the aim of the training is to train here so that you can return to your family and the business place and be a more beneficial part of that uh, society. So again, we are not sitting to meditate to feel any better. We are sitting to meditate to become what ultimately all of us, all of our meaning and purpose for our own existence is, and that is to live my life as a benefit in the world. But again, I cannot benefit you until I've learned to be a benefactor to myself. Any questions? You have one more? Five of. Five of. Five of? I got five minutes. <laughs> Hi. Could you please clarify the difference between 
when you're when you're meditating and you know these mundane thoughts come up like the grocery list or what I have to do that day. That's that's not what we want to want to be going. But when something comes up that you kind of know is a needy subject or something that has a deep weight, like for example, you're meditating and all of a sudden the moment of your mother's death comes into your mind. Mm-hmm. Is that still is that what's the difference between thinking and observing these things that come up? Yeah. It's Thinking about the things that come up is having a conversation with yourself about that memory. So thoughts and thinking are two different things. Thoughts have a life and energy of their own. So they, will, those, they are some of the things that come up in the space that I'm talking about, that we create. When we think about those thoughts, so we have this memory and now we start to think about what happened at the funeral or how she died or how much we miss her, that's what we want to train not to do, okay? Because that is ego's way of taking us away from experiencing the experience of that. So we don't know the difference until we know the difference, which only comes through meditation, training, between experiencing our mother's death and our concepts about that, you see. So, Ego will use what I call conceptual intrusion during a meditation for reasons other than what we think. So we think that, oh, it's very natural to remember my mother dying. But ego at that moment may very well be bringing that memory up to, because you're not listening to other distractions. Okay? All right? May I ask, uh, yes. initially, um, to go on that, to that further, so when you're holding that space, do you allow that to just keep emerging if that thought mm-hmm. just keeps coming? And you, you remain focused on your breath. You remain focused on following your breath as you breathe in and as you breathe out. Um, in, in the um, motion picture that came out many years ago titled The Little Buddha, and it was a story about uh, finding the little Buddhas. Okay. And so throughout the story, the Tibetan monk in the, in the movie was depicting the story of the Buddha. And when they got to the point, he was being played by Keanu Reeves. So when they got to the point of the Buddhas sitting under the Bodhi tree meditating, the way they depicted it was really very beneficial. Uh, so they had this depiction of you know, Keanu Reeves as the Buddha under the Bodhi tree and Mala... Uh, sent, Mara sent armies and storms and beautiful women to him while he was sitting there and he just remained perfectly grounded and centered no matter what Mara sent to him to distract him. So yes, all these things will naturally rise. Our job, as the Buddha said, is to ground ourselves in our meditation like the great oak that sends its roots deepest into the earth than any other tree and the widest. So no matter what is thrown at us, we are not disturbed. In my earliest days of meditation, you you couldn't even imagine what my movie looked like. (laughs) But eventually all of that drops away. Any other questions? So, this is the point of the night, 
where I'm supposed to talk to you about what's coming because we're going to be closing shop after next week. During the month of August, the monastery is closed to the public and next Wednesday night I will be here offering a beginner's mind meditation class. So whether you are a seasoned meditator or a beginner or you want some clarity on meditation, that's the night, the third <coughs> Wednesday of each month. Uh, I hold a class here from 7 to 9 on the techniques of meditation. So come back for that. And after that, uh, we are closing shop, as I said, throughout the month of August, as we normally do. And our next ANGO training period will begin on September 8th. And so we are offering a course in spirituality and ANGO training combined in September. And if you are seriously interested in training alongside the monks and, and me and other members of our community and guests who have already begun to register, you need to go to the website and read about that. There's a flyer out there about it also and register. The toughest part of the training will be registering. Okay, so if you register, you've hit about 95% of the most difficulty. I lie, it, it does. It's <laughs> so, September 8th, we start our ANGO training. You need to register, you need to be part of that, be part of this community, join us in training, and we'll be here to support you in getting to where it is you need and want to go. Emil, anything else I've missed? Oh, Saturday. Is, is this Saturday? Yes. Oh, this is Saturday night. I was about to tell them about Zen Chat. This is it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I have them for, <laughs> to keep me where I'm at. <laughs> Jesus. Okay. No, Rosh, you covered it all. I covered it all. They, we are really at the end, aren't we? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Hey, see what I mean? See, I told you about that. You gotta watch me. Okay. As always, it was certainly a, a privilege to be with everyone tonight. Thank you for coming out and not making excuses as to why you can't be enlightened on such a summer day.